Is Michiko in here right now? I'm looking for Michiko. Where is she? There she is. Hi. Konnichiwa. She just got back from a short-term trip to Japan where she spent uh, time with about 30 ladies doing uh, an event called Come Before Winter, which was a spiritual growth kind of event for those ladies. They've been planning for like three years and preparing for this, these 30 ladies or so. Um, Was there more than that? Was it about 30? Yeah. And uh, anyway, I just think that's great. And it, it's really got me thinking just about how we don't spend enough concentrated time in efforts like that. We come together each Sunday, of course, but this ends up being, you know, just a couple of hours, three hours, whatever, uh, for these events. And if we were to spend an extended period of time together, maybe looking at one book even, the way that they did, Uh, that there could be something excited about that. Anyway, I've just been thinking about that. Who knows whether or not something like that might be done here. Um, Next Sunday, on March 4th, we're going to have a prayer time together. We're going to do that at 1 o'clock. I really encourage all of you to be here. I've been thinking also a lot about how crucial prayer is for our church if we're going to do the kind of things that God wants us to do, and and we need to pray together. So come together uh, next Sunday, 1 o'clock, back here, and we will pray and God will bless us because we did. There is a welcome class today that's going to start in the library. It's going to run for four weeks, and if you're interested in being part of that, if you're relatively new to our church, and if you want to be part of that welcome class, we'd love to have you in the library today for that during the Bible class hour. Uh, We're also going to show in here in the auditorium Dallas Willard doing some wonderful things as well. And so please stick around for Bible classes today, and you'll be blessed if you do all of that. Um, I have to tell you... uh, I was sitting there crying for a good portion of our worship this morning. And it was because it was so beautiful. Oh, man. It was just so beautiful. I mean, uh, good on those who, who uh, were playing this morning and singing and blessing us with that, leading our worship for us, and the songs that were chosen, and just the whole, the whole thing just uh, was so moving to me this morning as I was listening to all of that. Thank you, Lord. Turn, if you would, to the book of Zephaniah. It's page 665 in the Bibles that are underneath your seats. We're in this middle of, oh yes, thank you, Melissa. Melissa's getting my attention here. We need a volunteer. We need a volunteer to get together a word for us. Who would like to do that this morning? Perfect. Jesse, just run up over there to Melissa and help her. That's fantastic. Thank you for volunteering. So we're in the middle of the study of of the minor prophets, and it was interesting. I don't know if you noticed this. I think it was after the first service last week that Jonathan, when he got up to make some comments after the sermon like he often does, he said something like, well, this is is my paraphrase. He said, boy, that was a downer. That was kind of his his language. Now, he didn't, (laughs) he was being wonderful. Because what he was doing was he was drawing attention to the fact that we were discussing tough times from the book of Habakkuk. And that's absolutely true. And the picture that I painted about not just the state of the world then, but the state of the world now is not great. And the state of the world for Judah was not great. Habakkuk had to speak into that kind of climate. And even if there's a call for us to continue to trust the Lord at the end of a book like that, it's still... You have a hard time overcoming all of that stuff 
that is just so heavy and harsh. And it's true because sometimes the prophets are like that. Habakkuk was prophesying in about 709 BC. We're going to see a, a diagram here in a little while that, dicta- that de- uh, demonstrates some of that. And he was predict- predicting that Babylon was going to come and was going to bring incredible destruction upon Judah as punishment for their sins. And this was going to be massive. And so the prophecy is in one sense harsh and difficult. But I want you to remember how it closed. It closed like this. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And so some of us go through difficult times. It can be hard, but man, God is there. He is not going to forget us. He does not forget his people. And so a couple of points from that. One is God is in control of things and will ultimately bring about restoration so God's people can rejoice. And we're gonna see this more in Zephaniah today. And then as their strength, he has prepared them to get through tough times and has even prepared them for action, which parallels our opportunity to work in his kingdom today when things are far from perfect. And we saw last week that things are far from perfect. There are some things in our world that are very harsh, but we can continue to trust in God. Well, this week we're looking at Zephaniah, a prophecy that certainly has its parallels with Habakkuk. But Zephaniah is at least going to be saying a couple of other things that are really significant. And so of special note, so I want us to to look at these uh, in just a moment. As we do this, though, as we prepare to look at Zephaniah, I want us to look a little bit at the background. Because this book has to be set up a little bit. And I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, and the the Bibles under the seats, uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, page 278. So go ahead and keep your finger at Zephaniah. Don't lose that because you'll never find it again. And go to, go to 2 Kings 21. And I want, I want you to just read this. This is amazing. This is what was happening at the time that Zephaniah prepares to prophesy. 2 Kings 21 starts out like this. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. 55 years. How long has Victoria or uh, Elizabeth now been on the throne? Long time. 60 years, 70 years, who knows how long it is. I know uh, Victoria was on the throne for a long, long time, and I think Elizabeth has broken the record. So he was on the throne for 55 years, long time. His mother's name was Hephazibah. Anybody have a mother with that kind of name? He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts, so he's worshiping the stars, and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord. So he goes right into the temple of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. 
In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to, Sol- uh, and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, etc. Et it's pretty bad, folks. Uh, this is an, a nasty, nasty picture that is painted of Manasseh and his reign. Uh, so there's all kinds of things that go on here that are terrible. Look down at verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh also shed much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So it's not just the king, but it's the whole tribe of Judah. It's the whole southern nation that is caught up in the sins of uh, the peoples around them. It's no wonder that God was at times saying, destroy them, because this will happen if you don't. And indeed, that is what happened. Now, I want you to look at verse 19. Ammon comes on the scene, Manasseh's son. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem two years. His mother's name was, whatever that is, Meshulameth, daughter of Haruz. She was from uh, Jotbah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He walked in all the ways of his father. He worshiped the idols his father had worshiped and bowed down to them. He forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Ammon's officials conspired against him and assassinated the king in his palace. So he's, a, he's such a bad dude that they decide they have to kill him, but it's not because they're trying to be holy themselves. It's because they probably were just as evil and they conspire against him and kill him. Uh, then the people of the land killed all who had plotted against King Ammon and they made Josiah, his son king, in his place. And then I want you to notice chapter two, verse one. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was, etc. And then in verse two, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. And in the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshuzaliah, whatever that is, to the temple of the Lord. And he said, go up to, and I won't read the rest of this, but the, what basically what happens is there is a, uh, a rekindling of faith in God with Josiah. And Josiah is one of those kings, and it becomes one of those times when something wonderful really happens. And so something good happens with the reign of Josiah, and I want you to remember that. Now, a couple of things I want you to note. First, there was actually a significant repentance by Manasseh near the end of his reign. It's not recorded here, but it is recorded in 2 Chronicles 33. And so right at the end of Manasseh's reign, after he'd actually been captured um, by the Assyrians, he's, it's a long story, but he, he ends up getting captured gets sent back to Jerusalem, and at one point he actually does bring about some good things before he dies, just in the last few years of his reign. Now his son Ammon, as we just read, still uh, does lots of evil. But right at the end of Manasseh's reign, there is a bit of repentance, uh, even though Ammon very quickly kind of turns that around. Um, 
Josiah becomes on the throne in 640, but his grandfather actually dies in 643, uh, having been king and doing some good things right at the end, and I think that's important. In fact, uh, it looks like this. Manasseh's reign ended in 643, after a brief repentance. Ammon reigned 643 to 641 and did a lot of evil, and Josiah began reigning then in 640 when he was eight years old. And I just want you to think for a moment about an eight-year-old and what that's like for him to be king. And then I want you to ask, or I want to ask you the question, is it possible for a boy of six, and I know it says here he's eight, but obviously he was six first. I want you to go back a couple of years before that. When his grandfather is still alive and doing the repentance thing, is it possible for Josiah to remember an event as significant as the repentance of his grandfather after all the evil that his grandfather had done and then with the evil that his father does later? Is it possible years later for a man, say, 26, to remember what it was like when he was six or seven or eight years old? And I would say that it is. I can remember in grade one, when I was six, kissing some girl named Tammy. She had blonde curly hair, and what I remember about the kiss more than anything else is that her two front teeth were gone. Take that wherever you want to go. I was, I was six years old. I can remember when I was six years old cheating on a test. There were five questions on the test. I had no clue what the test was about. Dennis Rupp was sitting next to me. He was a good Mennonite boy. Dennis Rupp should have known what he was doing. So I looked over at Dennis's paper. I copied all five answers. I got all five wrong. (laughs) And so did Dennis. I never trusted him again. I've never trusted a Mennonite since. I can remember thinking when I was in grade one that my first grade teacher didn't like my stuffed giraffe. That's because we had a day when everybody was supposed to bring their stuffed animals to school. So we all brought our stuffed animals. I had a stuffed giraffe. It was mediocre. I thought it was mediocre when I brought it into class. When I saw everybody else with all their nice stuffed animals, I thought theirs are better than mine. For some reason, the teacher took my giraffe and she stuck it up on top of the cabinet. All the other stuffed animals were over here. And I couldn't figure it out. So I went to her and I said, what's the deal? Why is my giraffe up here? And she said, I just haven't put it anywhere else yet. Which I think was absolutely the truth. By the way, she was Dennis Rupp's aunt. <laughs> and so she, she eventually did put my giraffe along with the other stuffed animals. I never knew why she separated mine, but she did. I remember some things from grade one. And so I think it's very possible that Josiah remembered what it was like when his grandfather Manasseh repented a short while before his death. And these things, I think, are all significant for us to think about this morning. Well, I said there were two things of note. The second thing is this. It is very likely that Zephaniah was prophesying sometime between the time that Josiah was eight years old and when he was 26 when he started the reform. Okay? So that's the period under which Zephaniah starts his prophecy. 
fact, uh, if you were just to flip back to Zephaniah, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So between the time that Josiah is eight, when he starts to reign, and the time that he is 26, where 18 years later, after he had become the king, is when he starts his reform, there is apparently a lot going on in Judah. And it is not good. For at least 18 years before Josiah comes and initiates his reform, gross evil was present during his reign. And he watched it, Josiah did. And he saw it. I think he, he was paying attention. And he recognized that there was a difference between his grandfather in the old days and his grandfather right at the end. And there was a difference between his grandfather and his father. And there was something about all of this that the new king apparently got sick of. And so partly, I think, because of some preaching from Zephaniah and maybe some preaching from Habakkuk who starts preaching in about 609 and also some preaching from a guy named Jeremiah who although in chapter 1 of Jeremiah says he wasn't a very good speaker, the Lord says, I will make you one. I think that with the preaching of those prophets and maybe some help from Obadiah and some reflection on his own life that Josiah himself, the king, initiates a reform. So it looks actually like this in terms of the timeline. Zephaniah, 635 to 610, those are approximate. Habakkuk, about 609 to 605, that's approximate. Jeremiah, 626 to 586, that's actually fairly definite. And then you can see where Josiah's reign fits into all of that. And he starts the reform in about 626, 623, 622, Josiah begins the reform of Israel. And my point is that Zephaniah, whom you probably knew very little about before we started talking about it this morning, was actually hugely significant in the history of Israel. Here's a guy who started preaching, and because he did, a king changed a whole nation and its destiny. Now, admittedly, not for all that long. It wasn't long after Josiah quits his reign that things kind of go back to the way they should. And eventually in 586, there is the Babylonian captivity, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. But Zephaniah was, for a short period of time, incredibly significant. This guy had some things to say. And here's some things he said. We're just going to look at a couple of passages this morning, and then uh, we'll be done quickly here. Chapter 2. I want you to notice it starts in verse 4 and it goes through verse 15. Some prophecies, not just about Judah. Like up until this time in this book, the prophecy has all been oriented toward Judah. Judah's doing this, Judah's doing that. God's going to bring his destruction. But notice in verse 4, if you have an NIV Bible, it'll say this right at the top. Against Philistia, Gaza will be abandoned, Ashkelon left in ruins. At at midday, Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. There's going to be destruction against Philistia, which is on the seacoast, just west of Jerusalem, that's going to come. Then I want you to notice verse 8 
in chapter 2. I've heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites Ammonites like Gomorrah. In other words, he's going to destroy them. He's going to wipe them out. Notice now verse 12, just very quickly. You too, O Cushites, will be slain by my sword. And I just might make the comment that Cush was a long ways away from Jerusalem. That's very interesting, in fact, that it's so far away. And then verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. And then he goes back in chapter three to some talk about Jerusalem and its future. Well, all of that is interesting because here we have a prophet saying God's destruction of people is not just gonna come upon Judah. It's gonna come upon the nations as well. God is going to clean things up. And the Syrians, who have been now with the northern kingdom for probably a 100 years by now, they too are going to receive from God his punishment. And what that says to me is that there is with God a universal kind of perspective. God is not just the God of the Israelites. He's not just the God of Judah. Cush was about as far away as these people could imagine. And God is in charge even of Cush. They weren't world travelers. And so they didn't imagine all the world that we can see. But of their world, they recognized that God was in control of it. And we, although we can now go to Mars with various things, maybe past that, past, there's got to be some Star Trek thing that's gone out past Jupiter. So I guarantee you that God is in control of our universe. And it gives me hope to think that that's who our God is. Here's what's interesting. Next Sunday, we're going to come together and we are going to pray. To whom will we pray? A God who is in control of everything. A God who is universally in control. He intended, and I think he intends now, to expand the impact of his reign. And he wanted then for Assyria and for Cush, for Egypt, for Moab, for the Ammonites, for the Philistines, for all of them to recognize that he was Lord and he was God. And he was going to purify his world because that's who he is. He has a plan for purifying his world. And in fact, he's the same Lord who now calls you and he calls me to help with the purification of our world just the way he has always wanted. So I want you to look at chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. Because after he has made it clear that he's the universal God who is in control of everything and he is going to reign, and after some words of destruction that come even upon his own people, God says this, Then will I purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, from way out there, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek 
and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear my harm. Any harm, sorry. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The sorrows for the appointed feasts I will remove from you. They are a burden and a reproach to you. At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered and I will give them praise and honor in every land they were to put shame or they were put to shame. At that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Wow. Wow. What a message about what God wants to do with the future for his people. And this is not just some grand vision for Israel. This is the grand vision for the day of the Lord. A grand vision for God's people at the culmination of all that he's going to do for them. And part of what needs to be said here is that in Israel's history, you know, this really never comes to fruition. There's a good time that comes with Josiah, but as I said, it doesn't really last. When does it really last, brothers and sisters? It lasts when Jesus comes. That's when the complete fulfillment of Zephaniah's prophecy comes to fruition. It couldn't come before because Israel was never what God wanted them to be. They were never pure. They were never righteous. They never really followed his will. But Jesus has set us free. And he allows us to do something, to be something that they could never be. God brings to fulfillment a vision for his people in the person of Christ where the real fulfillment of his vision for his people bursts into our lives and then we have a chance to live out what he intended for his people. And so his prophecy is quite literally more for us, I think, even than it was for them. And so what we see in 3, 9 through 20 And and just listen to this list. Pure lips. The calling on the name of the Lord. Serving him shoulder to shoulder. Meekness and humility. Truthfulness. Peacefulness. The singing and shouting of praise. The great rejoicing. The taking away of our punishment. The presence of God with us. The great delight of the Lord in his people. The praise and honor due to God's oppressed people. And the gathering of God's people in a place he calls home. All of that is just in verses 9 through 20 describing what it is that we receive, that we receive. And so we have a chance to see this because of the reign of Christ. Rather 
than this being an unfulfilled prophecy about Israel. It became a fulfilled prophecy with the reign of God's eternal king who serves on David's throne. And so, these are not times for despairing. These are not times for frustration. Depending on ourselves to fix the world, but seeing no progress. And, and, and sometimes it almost felt like last week that's what was happening. We, we talk about Habakkuk and all the positive things that he says. But as he says all those things, it, it starts to look a little bit depressing so that the slight comments he makes at the end don't really overcome all that there was. But in Zephaniah, it's different. This is a lengthy passage about glory, about honor that we receive in him. And it puts us in a position where we have a chance to impact our world, standing shoulder to shoulder, just as he said, able to impact our world with the message that God is reigning and bringing into effect his kingdom. And so the question this morning looks like this. Will you stand with him? Will you serve him? Will you work in our world as he's trying to work in our world through us? This is a time for repentance and action and change as God's people serve the Lord. Will you? There is so much to be done. And there is such a wonderful God who wants to use us in doing it. And he says he will. Do we trust him enough to put ourselves in his hands and let him work like this through us? He wants to. Let's pray. Holy Father, we rejoice today. We give you honor and glory for what it is that you have prophesied about us as your people. And what you've prophesied about your world and its future. And we do want God for you to work among us and use us that we might have just the kind of impact and influence in our world that you want us to have as your people. Thank you for empowering us and making this possible. Thank you for purifying us, forgiving us. Thank you for the wonderful grace that we have sung about so much already this morning and the way that you give us this chance through the coming of your son, Jesus. It's through him that we pray. Amen.